Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. This next composer's work has been heard at film festivals including Sundance, Rotterdam, Berlin, and South by Southwest. Her orchestral score for A24 film The Lovers garnered attention of critics and moviegoers and placed her on Film Music Magazine's list of the top 10 best scores of 2017. She has written the music for Amazon original I Love Dick, Apple TV's Holla, and most recently, the new Anna Kendrick Quibi show Dummy. She's the best orchestral composer that I know, and I'm very excited to have her as a guest today. And the composer is Mandy Hoffman. Wow, that was flattering. <laughs> it's true. I mean, your music is really, really good. <laughs> oh, thank you. So I wanted to start um, with what was it like growing up in Philly, was it? Yeah, I grew up outside Philly. Um, it was pretty boring. <laughs> and um, I was a misfit always. But now that's like what I love about myself. But um, yeah, I mean, I played music as a kid. I played viola, which I don't know how I got assigned that. But I, I, comp- I talk about it because like I was in the orchestra and the parts were really boring because they were, you know, their inner voices. And I feel like this has to do with where I am now because I would spend all of my, since I was so bored with these parts, I would just look what everybody else was doing in the orchestra. And had I been on the violin or the cello, which is my favorite instrument in the whole world, um, I think I would have been so busy focusing on my melodies and worrying about being a player. But I sat next to the woodwinds, and to this day, like, that's what gets me, are the woodwinds. Like, I just love the colors. And later on, you learned to play piano, too. Was that during your childhood? I played piano before I played viola. So um, pretty early, but practicing in my house was always kind of difficult. I grew up in this really crazy household. But it also taught me pretty early because I was really lazy about reading the alto. I mean, um, yeah, the alto clef. And so I would just read it and then transpose it to the piano, play it on the piano, and then play it by ear on the viola so that I didn't have to read the alto clef because I hated reading it. But but yeah, all these little things just kind of added up. And I always preferred to play my own melodies than learning somebody else's. So I don't know, you enjoyed music at that point then? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I definitely like had some kind of gift. Like the piano teacher that taught me didn't teach children, but she noticed that my mom would bring me to her lessons and she noticed that I would just like really listen. So she took me on as her only child, Francis. Yeah. (laughs) And I would pay me in jelly beans, these really gross jelly beans, (laughs) like those really big ones, you know, but I don't know, like there was a certain point where I just, you know, I think everybody that goes through music, you get frustrated with spending time alone and practicing, and I just want to do other things. So I quit music for a long time. 
What did you want to do at that time? I don't know. I mean, I got lost. When I was in high school, I really thought that I was going to be like a writer, like a novelist. And then the isolation turned me off. But that also like, I don't know. And then I became a singer-songwriter. I found my way back to music and it was more about like telling a story. I was like super into all these like like Tom Waits, I went through this crazy obsession with him and and his stories. So then I just kind of naturally, I feel like all of these places just pushed me to to film music. Was that a thing? Did you enjoy listening to like film scores? Or? Yeah, I did. We had like growing up, we had a few albums. Like we had Star Wars, all that stuff. And yeah, I would love listening to it. And then I always loved like ballet music like Tchaikovsky and stuff, which I feel like is kind of like the film music of yesteryear, more so than opera, because, you know, opera has the words. And then so in ballet, everything is told through this music. So yeah, I love ballet music, but I never danced or anything. That's such an interesting and diverse selection of just like musical interests too, (laughs) that all revolve around storytelling in different ways. Yeah. I mean, I went through this like Pink Floyd thing too. Like, I mean, and then punk. uh, No, before. Well, The Wall was cool. I mean, it's definitely like a major story, but I felt like all of their music was so cinematic and there was so much story and these like really unexpected chords that they would throw in. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely all over the place. I think that's another reason why I ended up here. Like I tried doing the the band thing and I couldn't really decide who I was musically. I would be in like four bands that did different things. I had like my singer songwriter thing, which was kind of like inspired by Tom Waits. And then I had, I was in this Klezmer group that we were like, it was a joke. It was a joke band. I'm I'm half Jewish. So like, that was another thing. Like I would go to my friend's grandma's house and there I could play the piano because it was quiet and they had one songbook and it was Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) So I would just play these Fiddler on the Roof melodies. So I feel like that kind of got stuck in me. And then uh, like, I just kind of gravitate towards this scale and the gypsy scale too. So, and then I was in a country Western band. I'm all over the place. I knew of you as a bass player too for a bit. Yeah, I was in a I was a bass player in this country band. We had this really silly name called Five O'Clock Somewhere. And it was the most fun band I've ever been in because we had this amazing singer. And she could, I mean, there could be five people in the audience or like 500, and she would have everybody's attention. And so I could just kind of relax and like play the music and be in the back. And we would dress up. There was three girls up front, and we would dress up in these crazy matching square dancing outfits (laughs) and do these three-part harmonies. That was really fun. And so were you playing in bands uh, during high school or was this right after No, in high school, like, I mean, it was like a really dark, dark period of my life. My family was a mess. But then after high school, I just started noticing that I was always attracted to musicians, guys and bands. And then I fell in love with this one guy and he, you know, he was a musician. And and that's when I started relearning music again, because it had been a while and I, and I picked up the guitar and uh, yeah, it took, then I realized, and there was like a big thing, you know, I'm a lot older and 
back then girls weren't really in bands. Like now it's the cool thing to do. Like you have to have a girl in your band. But back then nobody wanted a girl in your band. So he felt like threatened by <laughs> me playing. And But I, I got back into bands and I played in, New, this was in New York. I was living in New York at the time. And I started playing in bands and I just was hungry to play anything. But then I moved to LA and it was like everybody was in the 70s. It was really weird when I first got to L.A. And you didn't go there to pursue uh, music initially, right? No, I went with that guy that I, that I was in love with. He moved to L.A. He got this big record deal. He just kind of got overwhelmed by it and decided to just go to L.A. Yeah, he was recording at A&M Studios, which is gone. Um, and, like, all these huge bands were recording next to him. I think, like... Kiss was there, like recording, and they had all their crazy guitars out in the hallway. But yeah, so we I moved out there with him, and then um, we broke up pretty much right away. And but um, I was really heartbroken, and I didn't know anybody, and I felt like I needed to stay and face something. And that's when I really got into music. Well, didn't you have a friend who was working for uh, Mark Mothersbaugh? I did. Uh, that's how I got interested in film music because uh, this band, the singer-songwriter band I had, it was called Blue Eyed Doll. And this guitar player that I worked with a lot, he was in another band with this guy, Josh Mansell. And he was working at Mutato and invited me to come over. And I was I was like, okay, I'm home. This is like the cool, This to this day, I think it's the coolest place I've ever been. I hear nothing but great raving reviews of the studio. Oh my God, it's so cool. It's like being in a spaceship. It's a round building. So there's just, and there's just windows all around, but it does have that like Star Trek Enterprise kind of thing too. And then there's just like toys everywhere. And then they have this big live room in in the middle of the circle. So there's no like windows to the outside. And then downstairs is like his synth collection, which he is like one of the biggest synth collectors of all time. And at that time, he had the first synthesizer, which was this giant thing. Like it took up a whole wall. And then Mark is also um, a visual artist. So his art was everywhere, and it was just so cool. And I was like, okay, I just want to work here. Like, I'll empty the trash cans. <laughs> like, And then Josh told me about this program at UCLA, and he's like, you should go to this program at UCLA. That's what I did. And so then that took like five years because I had to go relearn how to read music and write music wow. and prep, and then I went there, so... But didn't you go to Pasadena before that? As yeah, well? that's when I was. I went back to school to Pasadena. It was like boot camp for me to like. I had to like unlearn all this DIY stuff. And they had this really incredible music program. It was really challenging. And they had an opera program. And Bobby Bradford, who taught jazz, was still there. It was pretty. I felt pretty lucky, and some of the staff taught at USC. So when you were there, I guess you went to classes with the intention of getting out there and going to like a, a mother's boss studio or just being out as a film composer at that point? Yeah. I mean, I, I it hadn't occurred to me to be an assistant. Like, I mean, well, it did when I saw Josh because I said, oh, I just want to work here. And I mean, this is crazy, but Josh was straight with me and he's like, he's not going to hire you. You're a woman. You wow. know, and at that time, that's pretty much, and which pissed me off. 
and gave me fire, like, you know? Yeah. I mean, of the assistants I know still, I feel like it's very hard to break in as a woman. I mean, I I did get, I talked to one guy about doing an internship, but when I went to Pasadena, I think it was my first semester, I got my first feature film. So I was doing it at the same time. And then by the time I got out of Pasadena, I had already scored like two shorts and a, and a feature. So I kind of felt like I was already doing it. That's incredible. I mean, there's so many people who graduate and have no idea how to get started and getting their first feature. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to like learn everything super fast. And then the music program was really intense. I think I was taking eight classes at a time. And then I was also bartending to pay my rent and then doing this film. So, I mean, I don't think I slept. But yeah, I mean, and it's weird. I would never write another score like that because, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but it's also one of my favorite scores that I did. Was that the Good Time Kids? Yeah, that was the Good Times Kid. And that's started my relationship with Aza Jacobs, who I've done like six projects with. Like he taught me so much. I just think he's such a genius and like understands cinema. I often think like, what would Aza do? <laughs> like whenever I'm working on something that has nothing to do with him, like I think about those early days where we were like learning together. So just to check, you guys met while you were in school, but did you guys meet at school? No, I, I met him out, outside, like just from like the scene in Echo Park. So you were actively going out to like artist communities then? I was very involved with the artist community. And, you know, I knew a lot of visual artists and filmmakers, and I've just always been attracted to very creative people. And I just happened to make friends with all these people that were going to AFI. He was at AFI at the time. So yeah, they were my pals. <laughs> and then I worked at this uh, this bar in Echo Park called The Short Stop, which back then, I mean, now it's like this total Dodger bar, I guess. But back then it wasn't. It was like all these like artsy people and a lot of crew would hang out there, producers, you know, editors, not so much like actors. A few actors would, um, but my composing teacher at Pasadena was like teasing me. He's like, you're going to get all your work from that bar. <laughs> and I was like, probably, you know, because that's what it's about. It's about relationships and meeting people and connecting to people, you know. Was that stressed in school in terms of getting work? No. I was the only person in school doing what I was doing. I felt like by the time like, I finished all the school, like it, it was catching fire. Like all of a sudden everybody wanted to do the film music. But at that point, like all my friends that were musicians just wanted to be in bands and like tour. But I saw what was coming, that nobody was going to be able to support themselves, you know, doing that. It's really hard. Yeah. And just rigorous going on the road too. Yeah. That's not me. I'm a homebody. <laughs> I mean, all that's amazing. While you were in school, was it challenging to go more to this like traditional music creation mindset? It was definitely challenging. Yeah, I mean, I was 
overwhelmed, but I just felt like it was about instincts with the film music. And I would also, you know, I've always been a little bit offbeat. So I just kind of went with that. When I went to UCLA, because I was the only composing student at Pasadena, they didn't really know what to do with me. There wasn't really a program. Like I had a teacher that kind of took me under. He was so great, this guy, Al Davis. And then the theory teacher was into me because I like I like reading and writing music like on paper was like a new thing for me. So but I just like I'm really good at puzzles. Mm -hmm. So to me it was just like a puzzle and these little melodic devices that they taught us. I still use all of that like every single day. But when I got to UCLA, like everybody was like way ahead of me and they had gone to like proper composing school and we were supposed to do these like sound alikes. And I like failed every single time. <laughs> like I just couldn't sound like somebody else, which now looking back, I'm kind of happy about that. Right. I'm sure that I mean, just comes from your whole vibe of trying to make the most well, personal music that you can. I, yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, sound exactly like Debussy. And I understood like there's a, a function that happens in the music. And if you take it apart and build it back up together, then you can learn how to put that in your toolbox, you know, for when you're under the gun and trying to write a scene. And I think I got that. I just like couldn't sound like someone else. And then that also kind of opened my eyes that like maybe I wouldn't be the best ghostwriter or assistant. You know, because some people are really good at just like figuring out how somebody writes and then doing that. And that's an amazing skill. I just didn't have it. So I guess after graduation, just like going out into the real world and you already had some stuff under your belt, I was just from like the logistical standpoint, did you have a studio? I had like a home studio, like a project studio. And then I had a friend that worked at Sunset Sound and uh, we would record there sometimes. That was really cool. Like if if they weren't booked, we could get this like cheap rate because he was like an assistant engineer at the time and they were encouraging him to get better. And, and it was great. And we recorded some stuff there or I would just, you know, go somewhere. And then I moved to New York, moved back to New York shortly after I finished UCLA because mm. it was like the housing crash the recession hit and i don't know i tried i thought i would move here and work in advertising and work at like some music house which i never did so when you came back to new york did you have any connections there or were they all still in la all my connections are in la i always thought that i would like break into some new york scene over here but i haven't like everybody i work with is in la almost almost everyone there's a few local filmmakers do you think that there is a scene in New York and you just never got into it? Or is it just that it's... There is. It's small. It's very small and it's and it's lower budget from what I know. I mean, there's definitely some great films coming out of New York. And there's a lot of documentaries here too. I, I didn't go out so much here. Like I was in LA. I was younger. I, you know, I moved back to New York. I had a baby and like that killed my social life. <laughs> I feel I think it's really important, especially when you're young and starting out, to just to just get out and meet people. Get out of your your studio, get away from musicians, meet other people. I feel like I I need to do that more. Like I have to push myself to do that. You're saying now? 
Yeah. Well, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a working parent, so there's like, there's no time. Well, now there's lots of time, but I can't go out. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, so I think it's important to just like get involved in communities and, and, and to come at it from a really natural place. Like, not like, I'm going to go to this film festival and meet directors so they'll hire me. I mean, it's more about just like meeting people with like like-mindedness, you know. I think a lot of people miss that. That it's important that that we all do this because we love film or TV, you know. We love stories. How did you initially get involved with those communities in Echo Park then? Was it just like you you said you gravitated towards them, but were you looking for them just going around neighborhoods or? I mean, it was just like, you know, it was really social and people would, in, you know, we'd have dinner parties or parties and people would invite people. I just like talking to people that, that are smart and do cool stuff, you know. I, I was involved with mu- something about the music scene in L.A. at that point. It was just like incredibly frustrating coming from New York where like the shows and there was like this pulse of a scene and I couldn't quite catch the pulse uh, of LA. I feel like if I had grown up there and a lot of my friends were native and, you know, Angelinos and they could feel it, but I couldn't quite get on it. But like lots of people like music, you know, not just music people. So you meet people at shows that do other things, you know. So I, I came back to New York and like, People ask that question, what do you do here? And it's not loaded. They're just like really curious <laughs> what you do. Like, whereas in LA, I feel like people are like, what do you do? Can you hook me up? You know? So like I say, oh, I do film music. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Anyway, have you seen, <laughs> did you hear this story? Like, it's just like, I could tell them I'm an architect, you know? It's just, that was what was like nice. You know, I get to be regular here. Yeah. And in terms of being a working mother, what are the... um what are the things you've learned about like balancing schedule over the years? I learned that deadlines work. <laughs> I am a deadline person. And when you have kids, like kids need schedule and routine. Like it's just like they do their best that way. And so you have to adjust. So I know how I have until this time to get my stuff done. And then you just have to do it. You don't have time for writer's block. You don't have time for anything. And uh, I also keep kind of weird hours because I, I always carve out a time in my day that I, f- that I call untouchable unless it's like a crazy deadline that, you know, that I, I spend time with my kids like every day and, and my husband. So, you know, like you just have to have that. And with being a, a parent, I don't think it's about quantity of time. I think it's about quality. So... Normally, my, my kids go to daycare and school, but the time I spend with them, like, I just show up 100%. You know, I try. Now it's a little hard, but <laughs> now I'm, like, failing at everything. I'm sure, you're doing, I'm sure you're doing a great job. How is it trying to, like, create a schedule right now with all this uh, quarantining? It's challenging. Like, my husband, David, is working. Yeah, he's working remotely for NYU at the Clive Davis School. And so he like clocks in and out. Like he has like a very scheduled day. And then we have two floors. So I'm downstairs in my studio. And we also have like a workshop down here. And then, so he's up there with the kids somehow working. (laughs) But then we, 
we have to like shuffle them around and yeah it's very challenging because because my little one is little at least you have that nice uh separation of studio downstairs yeah so i mean if i was writing a lot right now which i am gonna start writing again next week because it's just like i took a couple weeks off and I, i just need i need to keep writing it's a muscle that you got to use, you know. Do you feel like you're a perfectionist when it comes to writing for, I mean, I guess music for other people's projects as a composer? I think, yeah. Nothing nothing is ever perfect, though. And I'm kind of learning to live with it. But it just gives you inspiration to keep getting better, keep learning. The learning never stops, you know. You're going to keep learning until you die, you know. You should. <laughs> But I, I switch genres a lot of, of music. In a, in a sense, I feel like I start over a lot. Like uh, like you mentioned Dummy. I just did Dummy. And that was like mostly synth. What was it like experimenting with synths? Was it mostly like plugins in your computer? Or do you have some hardware synths? Um, dummy, well, it was crazy because I had a fire in my apartment when I was working on that. So everything, my computer survived and my hard drive survived. Everything was in the box for the first like few episodes and she had tempted in this really cool like Philip Glass stuff. I love Philip Glass. So I was like, okay, we're we're cooking with fire here. Like I'm just going to get out these quirky synthesizers like they were in the box but they were like the offbeat kind of synths. They weren't like the cool ones. Like I used like an Omnichord and like a synthy and like a mini, a Korg piano that just, it's quirky. It's funny, you know. And the show, the humor is is like cringy humor. And it just, it worked well. It was fun working on that show. But then towards the end of the show, there's like, you know, a change. I, when I When I work on a score, I, I really, it's really important for me to get like a uniformity to it, especially because... I jump around in genres and styles so much, but I like things to sound like from one place. And at the end of the score of Dummy, we went to this like more folky place and I brought the guitars out. So it was kind of like I was trying to stay in the synth world, but it just, it didn't work. Like we had to shift because the story changed. Yeah, but you can still keep some sense of keeping the show in the same world musically, even with different instrument palettes. Yeah, I tried to keep some of the rhythms the same and some melodic elements. There was such a giant shift. Well, you'll have to watch it. It's really funny. (laughs) Uh, And out of curiosity, what kinds of projects do you want to be working on next? I really want to work on something. Like I do a lot of comedy and I love comedy, but I really want to work on something really dark. Like let's kill some people. (laughs) Not really, like on the screen. Um, I've gone through so much trauma, especially now with this coronavirus. And then I had the fire and I had this horrible surgery last year. And I kind of want to go to like a place of darker music, either melancholic or even a little angry. It's all fun. You know, I love it all. But if if you could drop, if I could pick any project right now, I would want to do something, something that would be cathartic. And help me. But I guess I'll have to do that in my personal music too. Maybe I need to write like a threnody or something. <laughs> Get it out. Grieve, grieve all these weird, crazy, stressful things that just happened. 
Well, on the topic of catharticism, we have uh, just the last segment here, which is called Tech Talk, a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it and how you use it in your, your process. Okay. So the first one is uh, DAW. I've been on Digital Performer for forever, and I'm stuck on it because of the chunks, because I love being able to open multiple sequences in one project. If I'm trying to write something and come up with an idea, like it goes so fast. I feel like when I'm writing, I'm more of like a conductor of the ideas to come through me. And if I take a break and close the file, like I'm going to lose it. So I just move quickly through these um, chunks, which I wish they called it something else. But <laughs> uh, And I really want to move to Cubase, though. Like there's something really, there's a lot of really frustrating things about DP to me. And I kind of want to try something else. You're the third person, I think, to have said that. The other two, I think, use Pro Tools. Yeah, well, it seems like the organization in Cubase is, is really good. And I know, I, I tried Logic. I tried to get on the Logic thing, but it just felt like GarageBand to me or something. <laughs> something about it like just didn't click with me, and I tried so hard to get it. And I think that Logic, you know, like when I was in school at UCLA and like, we would play like these critiques of everyone. Anybody who used Logic, their mixes sounded the best to me. So there's, I don't know what it is about. Maybe it's like the plugins that come with Logic or something. I mean, I like that. I like how they organize the instruments too. But now I'm using a template, so it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, next topic here is electric bass. What do you use? What's the recording process like? I have my Fender Telecaster bass with flat uh, flat wound strings. It's my favorite bass. I love it. I always record directly, just directly in. Uh, I like my bass to be really clean. And then put a little EQ, you know, roll off the top, tiny bit off the bottom, find a little sweet spot. But I don't mess with it too much. And I don't like round wounds. <laughs> I, I just don't. I mean, they, I guess, I don't know, coming from like country and I just loved the flat wounds. And when I would play in my country band, like all the bass players were like, wow. And I play with my thumb too, which is like, I always thought I was kind of weird. And then I went to some old blues club in South LA, in like Crenshaw or something. And I saw this guy playing with his thumb and I was like, yeah, see? Like, because people always gave me crap about that. But you just um, pluck down with your thumb or do you go both ways? I mean, I don't, I'm not like a busy bass player anyway, so I'm not playing like, you know, but I just get a nicer tone just playing with my thumb. I do bring the, you know, the bass and the guitar into my recordings, especially like for TV stuff. Like I feel like having something live, I try not to have any cue that's all in the box unless it's like supposed to sound like electronic or synthetic synthesizer. You know, I feel like everything needs to have at least one live instrument that's human, has that human element to it. Uh, do you still have a viola too? No, no. But I do want to learn to play the cello. And I really wish I had one right now. <laughs> like it's on my bucket list. Like I just think the cello is just the most beautiful instrument in the whole world. Yeah. I think it's the closest to the human vocal range too 
Yeah, I think so. I think I've heard that. I mean, the range is huge. Sometimes you have these directors that don't like cello because every director is different. And recently I just did this short film and I did um, like a string quartet and I really wanted to use the cello more, but he really loves the violin. So I, you know, I had to really push myself to write backwards because to me, like all of the guttural emotion was in the, in the cello, but. Gotcha. Well, on that, the, the next topic here is uh, string libraries. Which string libraries are you Mostly I use Spitfire stuff. When I discovered Spitfire, I was like, oh, okay, this is easy. Like the user interface, I, I don't have to sit there and learn too much. It's very intuitive. Um, I think they sound amazing. I love the latest Albion they came mm. out with. Uh, Neo, right? Um, yeah, Neo. It's great. I love it. But I tend to use the string libraries that are smaller and and then layer them. But I don't write really epic music. But I really, like the orchestral tools, their stuff really calls to me. But they never go on sale. <laughs> they had one sale. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll get it the next sale. Because I had just spent some money. And I was like, oh, that was the, that was the one sale. <laughs> but yeah, I think their stuff sounds pretty amazing. But um, the Embertone, the Joshua Bell solo violin is incredible. That's like the the most amazing. That's my favorite thing that I have. I I just feel like I don't know how they they I feel like they had everything like they must have had the right mics in the right room. They had the right player and then whoever designed their user interface, it just everything is is there 100%. And I feel like you're able... Do you have that one? I don't. I regretted not getting it when it was on sale, but it will go on sale again, I'm sure. I think it was between that and the sample modeling one, which is the exact opposite of that library, in my opinion. That library is just like 20 megabytes of actual samples, but then the rest, they recorded it in like an anechoic chamber, and they used um, physical modeling to recreate the sound of a violin in the computer. So it just gives you all this control of like vibrato speed and depth and you can choose where the bow is on the string. Oh, interesting. It's kind of crazy. Um, so it's like all the control in the world, but at the same time, I feel like the Josh Bell one, I mean, it's Josh I Bell I feel playing, like I have so. so much control of of the sound on the Josh Bell one without having to do like, but without having to stop and draw it in, like I feel like I can play it in, which is like... It's not often when you're doing MIDI stuff that you feel like a sense of relief, like playing a line, you know? Like you always like have to go back. Yeah, he, I mean, wow, like his tone is just incredible. I mean, he's what is he playing, like a Stradivarius or something? I think so. And Probably. I think that one was done at Avatar Studios too in New York. Oh, really? I don't know if you can even book these days. Yeah. I mixed two scores there. Uh yeah, no, they disassembled it for Berkeley. Berkeley has a campus there, but they kept a couple rooms. But my my friend Roy was the chief engineer at Avatar slash Power Station. He was there since the eighties, and yeah, it was a heartbreaking thing. Like it's great that they didn't turn it into condos, but kind of wish they had kept it a little bit closer to what it was. Yeah, I mixed the lovers and Hala there. Um, and yeah, just one final uh, 
topic here is just about, do you think the world has changed in terms of being more inclusive for female composers or just uh, women in music in general? And how can others help to make it a more inclusive environment? I think it's changing. I don't think it's changed. Um, Hilder had an amazing year and that it was like pretty crazy to see anybody have the year that, that she had and then to have it be a woman. I mean, that's pretty inspiring. Um, and she deserved it because she just kicked ass. And I, I think people are starting to realize that, you know, anybody can write music. It doesn't matter, like, your gender or your race or anything. Like, um, I think it's going to take some work. You know, I, I do feel like a lot of it has to do with the interview stage because I feel like we tend to be the gentler sex. And I feel like guys are naturally have this competition from, I don't know about the next generation of kids, but you know, mm. the ones that are out there as adults right now, like, I just feel like women are a little bit less aggressive when it comes to, you know, being confident or rising up to this competitive force. I don't think that women, I'm competitive play me in a game and I will try my hardest to beat you. But I, I do think that when you're interviewing for these jobs and, you know, every time I interview, there's a lot of composers interviewing. And I feel like maybe, you know, they listen to the music, they like the music, I've got it to this step, but then there's this confidence this that kind of pushes through a little bit. Because, especially with music, because it's so intimidating for non-music people. They are terrified of it. And they want someone who's going to make it easy, who come in and say, don't worry, I'm going to do what's right for your project, and it's going to be you're the boss, and blah, blah, blah. And that's that's what they want. And I feel like, I feel like it, there's a discrepancy there that, that will always be there because I feel like women are – are slightly more nurturing. In that sense, I do end up working a lot with women filmmakers mm -hmm. because there is just like natural like communication that happens. Um, I do work with men too, but I feel like women are more open to working with me. You know, sometimes they prefer to work with a woman because they feel like they can be themselves. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it's a long road before before it balances out. Yeah. It's a funny thing where I remember the first time I got emailed uh, because someone was looking for an Asian composer and I was just thinking like, what a weird thing to ask. Yeah. Like, what does right? that mean? Like, you're like, well, I'm a composer and I'm Asian, but am I an Asian composer? I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's like, you're just, there. it's like two different things, right? I mean, it's like, what is it? Like, has someone come to you like, Asking like, hey, like looking for a female oh, composer. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, and it's whatever. It's weird. You know, it's like being typecast or something. But of course, we need any opportunity that we can get, you know. I did get asked once. This was on a commercial. They wanted girly music. So they called me. And I said, what the fuck is girly? Sorry. My life. <laughs> what is girly Music, like what is girly music? And no, I mean, there was a, a job that I interviewed for about a pregnancy. 
Uh, the film was about a pregnancy, and um, I've been pregnant twice. <laughs> and I just thought, like, you know, and I learned that nobody uh, on the on the project had actually had a full term pregnant, like carried through a whole pregnancy. So I thought that that gave me so much insight to to especially as the emotional part. And and I didn't get the job. A, a guy got the job. And I was kind of disappointed that here, like, I did have this, like, special skill that I could bring to the table, you know. this. Right. What's that extra lens that allows you to understand the story better? Yeah. Well, anyways, Mandy, thank you so much for being on. And yeah, yeah. it's a having you as a guest. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. Matthew Wong.